High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. You must remember a kiss is just a kiss, a cry for Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, Dead Blondes. Where are you going? Hollywood. Hollywood? Do you come here for excitement? I'm better than a human woman. Would you rather I be a brunette? My dress. Do you like it? I, I don't know. It's such a shock to see you dressed. Last month at the Golden Globes, when actress Brie Larson showed up wearing her long blonde hair and loose waves, cascading down one side of her face and over her eye, her stylist gave interviews citing actress Veronica Lake as the inspiration for the look. Brie Larson was not the first movie star to emulate Veronica Lake, and she won't be the last. Though Lake's movie career peaked 65 years ago and was more or less over by the beginning of the 1950s, her hairstyle is still so famous, such a touchstone of old Hollywood glamour, and so coveted that beauty websites and magazines regularly give tutorials as to how to copy it. If there's anything that's as well-known about Veronica Lake as her hairstyle, it's the fact that her stardom was brief. To many fans, it seemed as though she had completely disappeared until she released a shocking memoir in the early 1970s. By that time, though only in her late 40s, Lake had been physically transformed by years of alcohol abuse, and she looked nothing like the sultry looker that she had been in the 1940s. Shortly thereafter, 
she died, essentially having spent most of her life drinking herself to death. This end was extra sad, given that in her book and on her press tour to promote the book, Veronica had frequently claimed that she had left Hollywood 20 years earlier in order to save herself, body and soul, from an industry which, in just over a decade, had drained what it wanted from her and didn't care about what was left. But as we'll see, this fiercely independent woman sometimes couldn't get out of her own way. Join us, won't you, for the story of Veronica Lake. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. Veronica Lake became a star at age 19, and by that point, she had already lived a life. Born Constance Ockelman and called Connie growing up, the future star lost her father to a workplace accident when she was 10 years old. Soon thereafter, her mother remarried. The preteen, who had always been something of a loner, started exhibiting signs of what her mother claimed was mental illness. When Connie was beginning high school, she moved with her mother and stepfather to Miami. Connie had a difficult time making new friends and often seemed withdrawn. According to the biography Peekaboo, which was written with the cooperation of Connie's mother, on her 15th birthday, the mother took her to see a psychiatrist for the first time. The doctor allegedly quickly diagnosed Connie as a paranoid schizophrenic. This diagnosis has, today, largely been phased out. But in the late 1930s, when Connie was first diagnosed, it would have meant that it was believed that she suffered from delusions, which she couldn't separate from reality. Much to her mother's chagrin, 15-year-old Connie refused to accept this diagnosis and wouldn't allow herself to be treated. At least, that was her mother's version of the story. 
the future of Veronica Lake would not include this diagnosis in the childhood memories section of her autobiography. Maybe her refusal to acknowledge her sickness was a further sign of disorder. Or maybe she just knew a thing or two about how schizophrenics were treated in the 1930s, which was not well. Many schizophrenics were locked away in asylums, which had not changed since the Victorian era in that their main purpose was not so much to help the patient, but to rid society of their blight. Schizophrenics who did receive treatment were generally given one or more forms of shock treatment, insulin injections to induce sugar shock, or hydrotherapy, which forcibly brought the patient's body temperature either up very high or down very low. And if Connie had accepted her diagnosis, within a couple of years, electroshock therapy would have been waiting for her. And soon after that, she would have been a candidate for an experimental lobotomy. Even if Connie knew nothing about any of these things, as a person living in 1937, she knew the stigma associated with mental illness and that the label itself was all but synonymous with outcast and undesirable. Are there two things a teenage girl would want to be less than outcast and undesirable? Enrolled at Miami High School, Connie got in a lot of trouble. According to her mother, it wasn't that her daughter was bad exactly, just too beautiful for her own good. And, quote, the boys in her class couldn't keep their hands off her. As Veronica herself would later describe her teenage body, quote, I jetted out in front pretty good and was aware enough at that age to be able to walk certain ways to give me some jiggle and jounce. I knew the boys enjoyed that sort of thing, and I enjoyed their enjoyment. Connie found an outlet for her natural talents in a local beauty contest. The teenager worked up a gimmick that she knew would stop the show. She'd walk out on stage in a long, black satin evening gown, which she would unexpectedly unzip and rip off to reveal a bathing suit underneath. This trick was good for third place in the contest. Backstage, the organizer gave Connie's mom some line about how her daughter belonged in Hollywood. And she believed it. She believed that her beautiful blonde daughter was better than everyone else's beautiful blonde daughter. And she continued to put her daughter in situations that would net this kind of attention until the summer after Connie's sophomore year in high school, when the family packed up the car and moved from Florida to Hollywood, on the thin suggestion that MGM might want to give Connie a screen test. Sure enough, by the time the family arrived in Los Angeles on July 4th, 1938, MGM had decided they weren't interested in Connie. She eventually started getting extra work through a girlfriend, and almost a year later, Connie found herself on the MGM lot, filming a tiny part in an Eddie Cantor movie called 40 Little Mothers. There, she ran into an MGM talent scout who knew her stepfather and who offered to screen test her for real. Connie's test was somehow seen by producers at Paramount, who brought Connie in to test for a movie called I Wanted Wings. 17-year-old Connie was to be considered for the part of a scheming, and often drunk, chanteuse. In real life, Connie couldn't sing, 
But she had started method acting the other part of the role by sneaking out of her parents' house and into Hollywood clubs and bars on a near-nightly basis. Connie was costumed for the test in a tight gown that showcased her full breasts. At one point, the director of the test and later the film, Ted Weeks, asked Connie to come over so he could give her direction. She leaned over to hear the director, who was sitting down, and her breasts popped out of the dress and her blonde hair fell over one eye. She didn't notice what had happened to her breasts, but she was terribly distracted by the lock of hair, which she spent the rest of the test trying to shake out of her eye. When it was over, she suspected that she had performed terribly. She felt even worse when a cameraman came up to her afterwards and made a comment about her nipples. And then, a few days later, Connie was called back to Paramount. She had the part on one condition. The producer was wild about the hair falling over one eye. The flaw that Connie was sure had ruined her screen test had turned into the virtue that got her her first major movie role. The producer who cast Connie, Arthur Hornblow, decided she needed a new name. Connie didn't look like a Connie. Connie was the name of a cute secretary. Hornblow's actual secretary's name was Veronica, which Hornblow thought was a much better name for his new find. The lake was inspired by her placid blue eyes. Before nabbing the role, underage Veronica had begun dating John Detley, an art director at MGM who, at 32, was not quite twice her age, but close to it. I Wanted Wings began filming on location in Texas, and the newly dubbed Veronica, who missed her boyfriend terribly, spent most of her off time drinking alone in her hotel room rather than hanging out with co-stars Constance Moore, Ray Milland, and William Holden. She lived for John's nightly phone calls. She was definitely not looking for love, or anything like it, at work. But director Ted Weeks had trouble taking no for an answer especially from the little girl with the big breasts. Veronica kept telling him, no, no, no. And part of her withdrawal may have stemmed from not wanting to give Weeks any ideas that she was available. Midway through the movie, Weeks was fired, and Veronica claimed that this was because she complained to Paramount about the director's constant harassment of her. Weeks was replaced by Mitchell Lyson, with whom Veronica had a much better working relationship. By the end of the location shoot, she was in better spirits. Or at least she was able to fake it, smiling wide while posing for publicity photos alongside a B-12 bomber being used in the movie. One shot, in which the wind blew Veronica's hair around her face and skirt tight against her hips, was distributed nationwide. This was the first image most of America saw of Veronica Lake. As soon as Veronica returned to Los Angeles, where the shoot of I Wanted Wings would resume, John Detley proposed to her. They eloped one night at a chapel in Riverside, with John offering Veronica a ring he had designed in the shape of her favorite animal, a panda bear. But shortly after their wedding night, John had to leave for New Mexico, where he was working on his own location shoot. After a false report about an affair Veronica wasn't having with a co-star appeared in The Hollywood Reporter, she got so upset that she went AWOL from her movie, driving through the snowy desert to be with her husband. 
Before she made it, her car hit an ice patch in the road, and she lost control. The car tipped over and rolled. By the time it came to a stop, Veronica's toes were broken. She managed to hitch a ride to the nearest hospital, where her husband was called to meet her. By the time Paramount figured out where she was, three days had passed. Three shooting days. When the studio tried to scold her, Veronica was flippant. She told them she'd quit the movie in a heartbeat, and she didn't care about it or anything other than her marriage. Presumably because too much of the movie was in the can to replace her, Paramount decided not to let her go. I Wanted Wings was finally finished and released to stellar reviews for Veronica. The New York Times referred to her hairstyle as startling. This was just the beginning of a media narrative on Veronica that contended that her star power began and ended with that lock of hair. What would become the signature Veronica Lake look arrives fully formed in I Wanted Wings, which is more than you can say for her co-star, 23-year-old William Holden, whose face looks as though its features are still trying to decide how to settle amidst his bone structure. Ray Milland, who plays the rich dummy who is lured away from his sensible girlfriend by Veronica's nightclub singer Vamp, was in his 30s when he made this movie. But pitted against Lake, he looks like a pathetic college boy. More startling than her meticulously draped bangs and petite yet busty frame are the ways in which Veronica, in this movie, suggests that being a bad girl, a really bad girl, the kind of bad girl who, in a Hollywood movie of the 1940s, could only end up dead, could be really, really fun. Being bad would not become a key part of the Veronica Lake on-screen persona. And maybe that was where she went wrong. In I Wanted Wings, you see the suggestion of a female James Cagney or young Bogart. You see the possibility of a femme fatale protagonist who the audience roots for, even as she all but sets fire to all the good people and respectable institutions around her. But in almost every major movie Veronica Lake went on to make, she'd play a girl who looks like a bad girl, and might even have a taste for mischief or a facility for hanging with bums and crooks. But in the end, she'd usually represent the right way to do things, or at least the less corrupt alternative. Going into I Wanted Wings, Paramount was paying Veronica a standard entry-level wage of $75 a week. After she emerged from the movie as its breakout star, they gave her a 1,000% salary increase to $750 per week, but only after the actress herself demanded a raise to $1,000 a week. Veronica still wasn't sure she'd rather be a movie star than a wife, so she might have thought she had nothing to lose by shooting for the moon. But add together her so-called demands with her AWOL act on her first big movie, and Veronica Lake was starting to be branded with a reputation as difficult. This episode is brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on MUBI is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover. Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from Inland, Oregon, 
Oregon who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride. The public didn't know about anything really going on behind the scenes, of course, and they ate up the constant stream of press about Paramount's new starlet and her distinctive hairdo. Life magazine estimated the number of hairs on her head at 150,000. And woe to any young lady who started counting her own strands to see how she measured up. If Lake's reputation had reached Paramount contract writer-director Preston Sturges, he wasn't bothered by it either. If anything, he was drawn to the combative, domineering element of Lake's personality, as he had seen it in I Wanted Wings. He became determined to cast her, over the studio's objections, as the female lead in his next film, Sullivan's Travels. Sullivan's Travels tells the story of John Sullivan, a movie director looking to shrug off the crowd-pleasers that had made him rich and famous, such as Hey Hey in the Hayloft and Ants in Your Pants of 1939, and makes serious movies about serious subjects seriously plaguing the United States at the tail end of the Depression. Sullivan decides he needs to get in touch with a common man, and to do that, he wants to ditch the trappings of Hollywood and hit the road, alone, with nothing but ten cents in his pocket and a bindle on his back. Sullivan's hobo act is met with a number of false starts, one of which brings into his life a girl, never named, listed in the credits only as The Girl, who has also decided to leave Hollywood behind, after not making it as an actress. My next act will be an impersonation of a young lady going home on the thumb. In that outfit? How about your own outfit? I mean, haven't you got a car? No, have you? No, but... Then don't get ritzy. And I'll tell you some other things I haven't got. I haven't got a yacht or a pearl necklace or a fur coat or a country seat or even a winter seat. I could use a new girdle, too. I wish I could give you some of the things you need. (laughs) <laughs> you wouldn't be trying to lead me astray, would you? You know, the nice thing about buying food for a man is that you don't have to laugh at his jokes. Just think, if you were some big shot like a casting director or something, I'd be staring into your bridge work saying, yes, Mr. Smearcase, no, Mr. Smearcase, not really, Mr. Smearcase. Oh, Mr. Smearcase, that's my knee. Give Mr. Smearcase another cup of coffee, make it two. Want a piece of pie? No, thanks, kid. Why, Mr. Smearcase, aren't you getting a little familiar? Look. Thanks. Look, if you wanted to stay in Hollywood a little longer... Well, I don't want to stay in Hollywood a little longer. I've used up all my money, all my going home... Well, I was just going to say, I have a friend that's out of town, and you might be able to stay at his place for a couple of weeks, and maybe by then things would break a little better for you. Or he might even be able to help you a little. No, thanks. There's no strings to this, kid. I know you don't know who I am, but... I used to know a few people around here, and this guy's really out of town. And you know a way in through the window or something, no thanks. No, I'm pretty sure that in this case... I'm going home, big boy. I can get a ride out of here in a little while. I don't like to think of you asking a bunch of thugs for lifts along the highway. Then don't think about it. You mean you just get in any car that comes along? Anything but a Stanley steamer. My uncle blew up in one. That's terrible. You can't tell what kind of a heel is apt to be behind the wheel. All heels are pretty much the same. Paramount wanted to groom Lake as a vamp, 
but Sturgis believed she could handle his wordy, witty comic dialogue. It turned out she could, once she learned her lines, which she apparently never did before actually showing up to shoot. Her co-star, Joel McCrea, called this habit very unprofessional. But Sturgis liked the fresh quality the actress brought to the material when she hadn't memorized it. She claimed the director told her, Don't ever walk on my set knowing anything about your lines. What was truly unprofessional was the fact that Veronica began the shoot well into her first pregnancy. A pregnancy which she attempted to keep secret because she feared that if she told anyone, Paramount would replace her in Sullivan's travels and force her to go on leave without pay. At six months along, she confided in costume designer Edith Head, because she had to, and Head agreed to design garments that hid her baby bump, on the condition that Veronica tell Sturges what was going on immediately. Later that day, Veronica sat down next to Sturges's wife, Louise, who was visiting the set and who was herself expecting. Veronica made small talk with Louise and then whispered in her ear, Please don't tell Preston, but I'm also pregnant. When Veronica finally got up the courage to tell the director, he thought it was hilarious that she had tried to hide this for so long, and he told her they'd work everything out. But the studio went nuts. Veronica Lake was supposed to be their new sex star. The last thing they needed for the image they were trying to build for her was for her to become domesticated. Plus the hair thing that was part of her allure. That could be discussed in family magazines. But the other part that made Veronica special was her proportions, i.e. the full breasts that seemed enormous in contrast to her 18-inch waist. Childbirth potentially put both of those features into jeopardy. Plus, it would make it harder, or at least crueler, for them to plant items insinuating that Veronica was sleeping with her co-stars which was all part of creating a wanton, blonde sex symbol. Smartly, even if semi-accidentally, Sullivan's travels would prove that Veronica Lake had more to offer besides for a hairdo and knockout curves, and it would make the point by taking both of those assets away from her. For a portion of the film, Lake joined Sullivan on the hobo road, dressed in oversized men's clothes, with her hair tucked into a hat. It's in these scenes that Veronica not only shows her comic chops, but also builds the chemistry with Joel McCrea that makes the audience want to see these two get together romantically by the end of the picture. It was a trick similar to the one pulled by MGM a decade earlier, with another blonde bombshell, Jean Harlow, who made her initial splash as a platinum blonde in Hell's Angels, but then became a star on her own merits, without her signature hair, in the comedy Red-Headed Woman. Though Veronica also appeared in Sullivan's travels with her sideswept fringe, she won the audience's hearts without it. Sullivan's Travels is, today, Preston Surges's best-known film, perhaps because of the way it skewers Hollywood from all angles, thus giving us the idea that it's the famously iconoclastic filmmaker's personal statement, even though Sturges famously said, I am not Sullivan. This meta-angle was not enough to sell a movie in 1941, and so Paramount sold the film as a vehicle for Lake and her hair, releasing a poster featuring a painted caricature of her bangs swooped over one eye. Released almost simultaneously to the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the movie was not an instant smash, and it got mixed, somewhat disapproving reviews. 
but Veronica was continually singled out as a bright spot. Critics noticed her beauty and star power, of course, but they also gave her credit as an actress, arguably taking her talent more seriously than any previous blonde bombshell at a comparably early stage in her career. This was the movie that cemented Veronica's career as something that she couldn't easily walk away from. And then her husband, John, asked her to do just that. Right after the U.S. entered the war, John was drafted and assigned to report to Fort Lewis in Seattle. He assumed his wife and baby would join him. But Veronica now didn't want to leave her own work behind. So, much to John's annoyance, he went to Seattle alone, and Veronica stayed in Hollywood to shoot her first of several movies with Alan Ladd, This Gun for Hire. Lake and Ladd were paired together initially because both were short. At 5'5", five five, Ladd looked just right next to the 4'11 Veronica. Veronica didn't want to be part of a team. She wanted to stand on her own. But her films with Ladd would become far more successful than most of those she starred in on her own. And she admitted that they were well-matched. Both of us, she'd write, were very aloof people. In This Gun for Hire, which has a lot of plot, Veronica plays a gorgeous nightclub singer-slash-magician whose cop boyfriend is assigned to hunt down a contract killer, played by Ladd. Veronica's character is approached to assist in a government mission to expose a weapons manufacturer as a traitor, selling ammo to the enemy by going to work in the nightclub run by the weapons mogul's flunky. It turns out that the client who sicked the cops on Ladd and the nightclub manager are the same guy, and Link and Ladd's paths cross more than once. Ultimately, Ladd ends up revealing his good heart by protecting her, even though she's made it clear that she loves the cop and isn't going to leave him. But she does succeed in luring Ladd over to the good side, while at the same time seductively selling to the audience the notion of national responsibility. That chemical formula. Yeah? But I know what it is. What? Gas, poison gas. They're selling it to our enemy. So? So tomorrow they'll ship it back in bombs. Japanese breakfast food for America. Do you hear what I said? It's important. This war is everybody's business. Yours too. Mr. Gates is still eating his peppermints. That's my business. Why don't you stop thinking about yourself for a minute? Veronica felt this gun for hire was a step backwards for her. In Sullivan's travels, she had risen to the challenge of acting without the crutch of her beauty. Now she was back, flaunting her boobs and bangs. So after the shoot was over, Veronica was happy to join her husband in Seattle. Her marriage was a struggle. John bristled at playing second fiddle to his famous wife, and he was probably justifiably creeped out by the way the press insisted on objectifying the mother of his child. And he made less money than Veronica did, and he didn't like her to show that fact off by spending her salary on the kinds of clothes a star of her stature was expected to be seen in. Veronica wanted to reconnect with her husband, but she didn't get the chance. She was soon called back to the studio. This Gun for Hire was a massive hit, grossing 24 times what it had cost to make, and they wanted to re-team Lake and Lad in another noir, The Glass Key. 
She then went on to make my favorite of her films, Renee Claire's I Married a Witch, in which she plays a spirit who returns to Salem, the site of her death, to wreak havoc on a local election by seducing a candidate played by Frederick March. Claire cast Lake at the urging of Sturges, who was acting as a producer on the film. And the director was glad he did. She's incredibly funny in her silliest and maybe even sexiest role. But Claire and March both joined Joel McCrea in speaking ill of Veronica's supposed lack of professionalism, which on this film manifested as chronic lateness. When you consider the fact that the poor girl, a new mom, had shot four films over the course of her first year of stardom, it's maybe a wonder that she was able to show up at all. Not only did she ultimately fulfill all of her studio commitments, but she became a high-profile cog in the Hollywood propaganda machine. Newsreels were produced explaining why the Veronica Lake hairstyle had no place on a factory floor and showing her adopting a new, off-the-face twist as a solution. Uncontrolled hair will never stay in place. The operator is exposed to the constant threat of hair caught in the machine. In addition... The rhythm of precision work can be seriously upset, resulting in faulty work. Miss Lake has now decided to put glamour in its proper wartime place and face the world with both eyes in the clear. In the fall of 1942, Veronica went out on an extended cross-country tour to promote war bonds. One of the stops on this tour was the base where her husband was stationed. He got a chance to see his wife in full star mode, and he didn't like what he saw. When the war bond tour was over, John issued an ultimatum. He was forcing her to choose between being a wife and mother and being a movie star. She told him she believed she could be both. He disagreed. They separated. About a month later, Life magazine named Veronica the top female box office star of 1942. Then Veronica found out she was pregnant. She and John were not divorced, but they hadn't been together as man and wife in a while. As Veronica put it, our sex activity was extremely limited. According to the biography Peekaboo, the father of the baby was producer William Dozier, who had cast Veronica as a Nazi spy in the film she was currently making, The Hour Before the Dawn. In her autobiography, Veronica acknowledges her relationship with William Dozier, but says that the romance began later. In any case, sometime during the making of the movie, Veronica fell. Reports vary as to how she fell. Newspapers at the time claimed she tripped over a cable on set. Her biographer claims she jumped off of a stool, screaming, I don't want this baby! And according to the same book, the reason she didn't want the baby was because her married lover had refused to take responsibility as a father and get a divorce. Either way, Veronica gave birth prematurely to an infant boy who lived for just seven days. John didn't make it to the hospital from Seattle until it was time to bury the little boy. When he finally did show up, he told Veronica that he was sorry, but... He just couldn't face her, or the baby. I wanted to be with my wife, not Veronica Lake, he told her. I wanted to be with my baby, my baby, not someone else's. 
By the end of 1943, 22-year-old Veronica Lake was divorced. At first, she was, as she put it, a gay divorcee, staying out all night, throwing dinner parties, becoming acquainted with Howard Hughes, enjoying the affections of Aristotle Onassis and director Jean Negulescu. Everything was swell, until she realized she was broke. The split with John, the medical bills, an ongoing arrangement to provide monthly stipends to her mother and stepfather, and keeping up the image that befit a major star, all conspired to quickly deplete Veronica's salary, which was still $750 a week, despite the fact that she had proven herself to be a box office draw equal to stars who made six or seven times that at Paramount. Her standing for negotiating a raise didn't look good after the hour of the dawn turned out to be a dud, bringing Veronica her first bad reviews and tarnishing her sheen as a box office draw. This movie, as Veronica later acknowledged in her book, was the beginning of the end of her stardom. But at the time, it seemed like it would be just a blip, and Paramount decided to show her that she was valued, re-upping her contract and giving her a massive raise to $5,000 per week. Around this time, Lake began dating Andre de Toth, a Hungarian refugee with a patch over one eye, who was just starting to make a name for himself in Hollywood as a stylish director. Lake and de Toth's relationship was volatile, and he could be violent. Veronica's mother didn't approve of him at all. For decades, she'd spread totally baseless rumors that de Toth had not fled the Nazis, but in fact was himself a Nazi. But Veronica didn't care about what her mother thought. She was ready to cut her mother out of her life, and essentially did just that by marrying de Toth at the end of 1944 and neglecting to invite her mother to the wedding. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now, and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. After her glory year of 1942, Veronica's career had been on the decline. Maybe Paramount had made a fatal mistake with her publicity stunt, claiming Veronica was changing her hairstyle for the war effort. Or maybe Veronica was such a star of the early war moment that once that moment was over, audiences moved on. In 1945, before the war ended, she was cast opposite Alan Ladd once more in The Blue Dahlia, a film written by Raymond Chandler in which there was a super spectacular bad girl part. And then there was the part Veronica was stuck with. Veronica's sexy hairdo is back, 
but her costumes in this movie are staid, even dowdy. She has her first emotional, close-up heavy scene, wearing a turtleneck and a peacoat. Again, Veronica was working while pregnant, although probably not far along enough for it to show. She'd give birth to her first child with Detoth about seven months after the shooting of Dahlia began. Veronica still looks absolutely gorgeous in this film, despite her mother's claims that by this point, she was drinking so much that she'd often show up to the studio unable to work and would have to be sent home. But it does feel like something's missing, vitality-wise. Maybe the problem is that her character isn't very interesting, but the actress fails to magnetically hold your interest, the way that she did in her previous hits. Audiences of 1946 did not share my critique. The Blue Dahlia was a major hit, marking Veronica's return as an A-list box office star. The film had such an impact that nine full months after it was released, an L.A. newspaper reporter drew on the title to create a nickname for the woman whose murder would captivate conspiracy theorists for decades, The Black Dahlia. Assuming her career was on the upswing, Lake and Detoth bought a massive ranch in Chatsworth and then began production on the first of two films they'd make together, Ramrod. In Ramrod, finally Veronica gets to show some metal as a headstrong young woman who refuses to live the life laid out for her by her father, who has tried to force her to marry a man to advance his own business interests. Her lover is scared away by this situation, but lets her take control of his ranch, which she attempts to use, along with her feminine wiles, as part of a plot to seek revenge. Ramrod is the proto-Johnny Guitar, in a number of ways. Like that Joan Crawford movie, its plot is set into motion by a woman who is determined to hold on to her own property in the Old West. But whereas Crawford's main rival and enemy is another woman with power, the only other woman in Ramrod is a much more traditional femme. In the end, it's the motherly, comparatively boring woman who gets the romantic victory that Veronica's character wants. And Veronica learns that if a woman insists on the independence and ownership of a man, she can't expect men to treat her like a lady. Veronica was in an increasingly tough spot off-screen, too. Detoth and Lake had a classically abusive relationship. He would belittle her and beat her and then tell her how incredible she was and that he couldn't live without her. One night, Veronica and her husband were at the Stork Club in New York, and as they were leaving, a male fan impulsively touched Veronica's famous hair. Andre went ballistic, punching the guy continuously until another bystander stepped in. I'm not sorry, Detoth insisted. I don't want anyone touching her. Veronica's biographer Jeff Lenberg claims that it was during the Detoth marriage that Veronica's schizophrenia became an uncontrollable drag. In an anecdote that sounds too good to be true, he describes Veronica as becoming so withdrawn that she would lock herself up in a room every day to listen to a record of the score to Hitchcock's psychological thriller Spellbound. Veronica does not mention this in her book. She does mention that while married to Dutoth, she was drinking enough that she and her husband would fight about it a lot, with Dutoth accusing her of being an alcoholic. Dutoth's 
Despite all of these troubles with the marriage, Lake gave birth to another child in 1948. And while she was in the hospital, Veronica's estranged mother, Constance, sued her daughter for failing to pay her weekly stipend. Constance went to the newspapers with her claims that she had cashed in a $10,000 annuity to get Veronica to Hollywood back when she was a teenager, and that her daughter had signed a contract agreeing to pay back that sum in installments, but had failed to make those payments for over a year. Veronica responded with her own statements to the press. The whole thing became very messy and very, very public. It ended with a settlement entitling Constance to $11,500, paid in monthly installments of $500. But Constance claimed that she never got most of the money, because almost all of Veronica's checks bounced. This is partially because Detoth spent money as fast as he and his wife could earn it, and partially because Veronica soon ceased to earn much at all. Amidst the scandal of her ugly family infighting and her decline in popularity at the box office, in late 1947, Paramount declined to renew Veronica Lake's contract. Veronica played a supporting role in one more Detoth film, Slattery's Hurricane. In the spring of 1951, Detoth and Lake filed for bankruptcy, and two months later, Lake filed for divorce. Needing time to think, she went by herself to a cabin in the Sierra Nevadas. She realized, as she put it, I didn't really want to go back through the grind of playing sexy sirens and grade B thrillers all for the silk purses of the studio management. Alone in the mountains, she decided she was through. Enough was enough already, she explained later. Did I want to be one of the walking dead or a real person? She went back to L.A., packed up her three kids, and went to New York. The hell with you, Hollywood, she said to herself as she boarded the plane. And fuck you, too. Veronica spent the next couple of years in New York, living in Greenwich Village, and appearing in television plays and stage plays. The kids eventually went back to Andre. Veronica took the lead in a middling production of Peter Pan. She married a drinking buddy, then lost her apartment when they divorced. By the early 1960s, she was working minimum wage jobs just to survive. In 1963, a reporter revealed that Veronica was tending bar in a flophouse women's hotel in Manhattan, under the name Connie DeToth. Even after she was found out, Veronica kept working there. She liked it. And in a way, it allowed her to straddle two worlds. There was a TV above the bar, and every now and then, a Veronica Lake movie would come on the late show. You could hear a pin drop, she remembered. No one drank when my movies played. At that job, she met a merchant marine named Andy, who became her next drinking buddy slash lover. Andy did not recognize her and did not know she had once been a movie star until months after they first hooked up. Veronica's career briefly perked up when she was hired to host an afternoon movie showcase on a local TV station in Baltimore. She continued to see Andy for the next few years, and over that time, his drinking led to a number of health problems. He essentially declined and then finally died before Veronica's eyes. After that, Veronica would regularly drink until she passed out at the bar. Sometimes the bartenders would let her sleep on the floor for the night. Sometimes she'd get arrested. 
Somehow, she got it together to appear in a play in Hollywood, Hollywood, Florida, and then in a low-budget horror movie called Flesh Feasts. Then she moved to England and became acquainted with a writer named Donald Bain, who helped write her autobiography. The book was a hit in the UK, and it led to one more Turing play, which Lake claimed in a New York Times article to have personally funded, rewritten, and taken over as director. That profile of Lake was paired with a photo of the 46-year-old actress, in which she was absolutely unrecognizable as the beauty of the 40s. In the story, it was reported that Veronica now wore a wig, was not in close contact with her children, and that her drink of choice was straight scotch, which she drank at a pub until 4 a.m. with a reporter and then started in on a fresh bottle upon returning to her hotel room. Finally, in March 1971, Veronica Lake returned to Hollywood, Hollywood, California, to promote her book, Veronica. The first line of the book, Veronica Lake is a Hollywood creation. The last line, long live short hair. Two years later, Veronica Lake died of cirrhosis of the liver and kidney failure. She was just 50. She died without a penny to her name, and though her son Michael was able to arrange for her to be cremated, the urn containing Lake's ashes was held by the funeral home because Michael couldn't afford their charges. A few years later, the ghostwriter of Veronica paid the bill and divided Lake's ashes amongst two of her friends, who said that they had scattered them off the Florida coast as she had wanted. Thirty years later, a thrift store in the Catskills briefly came into possession of what was purported to be a small portion of Lake's ashes. By then, the cult of Veronica Lake had blossomed, to the extent that the New York Times reported that $25,000 had been offered for the ashes by a Hollywood-area cemetery. As far as I can tell, they were never sold, which is one small mercy. One thing that seems clear is that, after everything... Hollywood was the last place Veronica Lake wanted to be. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our editor is Sam Dingman, and our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like the show, please talk about it, share it, do whatever you can to get people to find out about it. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and find us on Facebook and Instagram. And if you rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, that really helps people find it. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Oh.